An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're very pleased to have as our special guest, Karina Litvak. Karina has had a more than 25-year career in the financial industry. She is, well, remarkable. She is best known as a corporate governance expert, but how many corporate governance experts become an independent director of a major multinational company and then become the hero in a corporate governance drama featuring a bribery scandal, a crooked prosecutor, and the threat of being imprisoned for charges made up by the company's lawyers. She's a climate activist, but how many climate activists serve on the board of an oil and gas company and succeed in changing its culture? She's the granddaughter of refugees that sought safety in another company, but how many honor that legacy by opening their own home to more than 30 refugees for wars and other disasters? Karina is an independent director of the Italian multinational energy company, ENI. She also chairs the governing board of the Climate Governance Initiative and is a governor of the CFA Institute. Welcome, Karina. Thank you, John. Okay, let's start at the beginning. What's your origin story? How did you become the person you are today, both professionally and personally? Well, I think there are different strands to that. I mean, for a start, my father, my father was a major influence. He, um, he was a lawyer and he uh, essentially uh, created in Canada the concept of Aboriginal land rights because he sued Quebec um, provincial uh, electric company because they're disregarding um, the rights of the Indigenous peoples, uh, whose, whose property ownership was not registered on any piece of paper anywhere, but of course predated the arrival of the French and then the English. So that was the first thing, and I was 10 years old when that reached the Supreme Court of Canada and established a whole set of precedent. Uh, but I didn't particularly realize that at the time that that was going to be formative. And then, you know, over the course of the years, um, I found myself in situations where I was that troublesome person who called out what I thought was unethical behavior. And, um, and ultimately, that's what got me thinking that this is really what I believed needed to guide everything I did in business and in my life, for that matter. Okay, let, let's talk about ENI. Let, let's talk about the corporate governance rather than the climate side for a second. Sure. And the issues and investigations around ENI and Shell's activities in Nigeria. When I read about it, it seems like you were living through being the victim of an eminently binge-worthy Netflix drama about, you know, like high finance and corruption. But it was real life and you actually had to live through it. So would you be kind enough to walk us through it? Sure. I think it would make a really bad, not a good Netflix drama because it's just so embarrassingly bad. But basically what happened was that um, both companies, E&I and Shell, um, engaged in a um, 
transaction and acquisition of a very, very valuable asset. Um, the asset was owned by a shell company that was widely known to uh, be a front for the former petroleum minister uh, under General Sani Abacha of Nigeria. And um, because the asset was by definition tainted because of its association with a politically exposed person, it's pretty basic anti-corruption, anti-money laundering stuff. Um, the two companies decided that they would acquire the asset in a quite complicated transaction where they, where the shell company would sell it to the federal government of Nigeria and the federal government of Nigeria would flip it to the two companies in two mutually interdependent transactions that were conditional upon each other. And that um, hit um, the airwaves because of a lawsuit of a disgruntled um, intermediary who had been cut out of the deal. And so it was well known that this was the structure of the deal. And I was aware of this when I joined the board and I very innocently asked questions about whether that particular sequencing uh, to enable the purchase of, a, of an asset that was problematic might not trigger um, a legal enforcement action. It was that simple. It was just an innocent question on my part. And unbeknownst to me, there had been for three years an ongoing criminal investigation by the Milan prosecutorial authorities. And that blew up six or seven weeks after I joined the board. And so I, I kind of landed by accident into something that was, you know, very tense, very um, upsetting for everybody involved. And my, um, again, a very naive and innocent question was, would it not make sense in conducting the independent investigation that we all agree must take place um, that the individual staff who were involved in negotiating the transaction and signing off on it not be involved in the um, selection of the law firm and the supervision of the independent investigation? And that, again, this is really Governance 101, but that... Um, unleashed a, a sort of a torrent of, of recriminations and accusations. And fast forward a couple of years, and I became the subject of what became known to be a bogus criminal investigation. But I was accused of criminal conspiracy, of conspiring, I mean, literally with the Israeli Mossad to unseat the prime minister of Italy. This is why I say this is a bad soap opera, um, of taking um, bribes from the Nigerian government in exchange for a highly confidential inside information of the company. I mean, just a string of things that were so fantastical that I first laughed when I, when I read the, uh, the charge sheet, but it was less funny when I was, came under really strong pressure to resign with immediate effect, which I refused to do. And I was forced off the risk committee, which oversees all these things. And that in turn triggered an investor revolt. So then I was the subject of an investor revolt, where the investors, to my knowledge, 40 institutions and others that I didn't know about, who came together and insisted that I be uh, protected and reinstated and so forth. In a nutshell, that is what this very complicated soap opera was about. <laughs> in, in the end, the bogus charges against you, I forgot to mention anti-Semitism, yeah. missile to throw yeah. the government. Um, 
Yeah, it's, I actually still think it would be a great Netflix <laughs> show. Um, the were somewhat coordinated by lawyers on retainer to the company. And as I understand it, they and a different prosecutor in a different jurisdiction in Italy then themselves became subject to prosecution. Um, and in the end, I believe were found liable, um, and you were exonerated. So, um, yes, that's exactly right. I mean, this is like an onion, you peel it and there's always more layers. So what happened was that first of all, this case against me was initiated by a deputy prosecutor in an obscure town in Sicily called Siracusa. Bearing in mind that the company has dual headquarters in Rome and Milan. So this was peculiar, to say the least. Um, and uh, after the case was disclosed, um, the deputy prosecutor's boss tried to quash it and tried to send it up to Milan. And there ensued a nine-month battle between this deputy prosecutor and the Milan prosecutor to get jurisdiction with various parties um, allegedly connected to the company trying to interfere and prevent it from moving up to Milan. Long story short, the case did move to Milan as soon as it landed in the hands of the Milan prosecutor. It was immediately dropped. I was indeed exonerated. And the Milan prosecutor shortly afterwards opened, as you say, a counter investigation against a slew of people, 15 in all, that included the prosecutor in, Syr in Syracuse, Sicily, who went to jail, and then who turned state's evidence and fingered everyone else. Um, the uh, general counsel of ENI, who was accused of being the mastermind of this entire phony case against me, and as you rightly also point out, uh, an, an outside counsel who was Andy's largest grossing um, Italian lawyer who was uh, found to have been funneling bribes from the company to this corrupt prosecutor to open phony cases such as the one against me, but also to throw legitimate cases against um, executives so that they would be cleared. So it's really a hornet's nest of, of things, but ultimately um, the general counsel and his deputy were fired and there were a number of heads that rolled uh over this so it all sounds um dramatic and heroic in retrospect but during the time that it was happening did you, have, did you ever just want to curve into a fetal position refuse to answer the phone ignore the mail of the internet and just like shut off I, I'm embarrassed to tell you the fetal position is exactly where I, where I found myself covers pulled over my head, to be perfectly exact. I'm thinking, what have I done to land here? And interestingly, I had my daughter saying, mommy, just walk away. And my husband saying, hell no, this is, this is really quite outrageous. And they're trying to wreck your career and your reputation and you've got to stand your ground. And that's what I felt also. I wasn't about to walk away and in some way legitimize these ridiculous accusations. So, yeah. So having been removed and then replaced on re reinstated on the risk committee, yeah. as I understand it, you're now in a very good place with the CEO. Oh, 
and the other board members. How did that happen? I mean, it, it's actually a skill set. How did the relationship get repaired? Well, so first start, the relationship with the CEO was never affected by this. He knew and I knew that this was all completely manufactured. He knew and I knew that we had a really good working relationship when it came to the other topic that I hope we get to, which is our climate transition strategy. I mean, he and I had had a conversation about this three weeks into our term, and there was a lot of work to be done there. And, um, and I was not about to abandon that. And that's, in fact, a big reason why I would not walk away, because there was a lot of work to be done. Um, so the relationship with him was intact, although, you know, I, I can't say that I was delighted that, he, you know, all of this other stuff was happening to me. And he was very much, shall we say, um, stepping back from it and not doing anything to stop it. My relationship with other board members was poisonous. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I mean, I, you know, my attitude was I'm on this board. I serve on other committees. I serve on the board as a whole. There's a job to do. We're going to do it. But of course it was unpleasant. And then what was so interesting is that when the case was dropped, and not only was it dropped, but there was the counter case that revealed that this was, that there was so much toxicity behind this case, the board composition did not change for another three years. And so I was working with these same people who had you know, unanimously uh, voted to kick me off the committee and to question me. It was really a bit of a witch hunt, really, to question me on why I had handed this information to um, hostile parties and all this kind of thing. So the relationship really changed 180 degrees when all of these people were swept off the board. And that's what happened in May of 2020. So for the last two years, I've been working with a brand new board. Now, as you say, the other issue you want to get to. Yeah. <clears throat> you've used your position on the board to focus the company on the climate crisis. And e and I has emerged as something of a leader in that regard, certainly within the multinational energy companies. Um, it's endorsed the COP26 Glasgow Carbon Pact. It's pledged carbon neutrality by 2050. And it's endorsed interim targets What's that like being a climate activist on oil and gas company board? And, and why have you been effective? Okay, well, thanks for those questions. It's interesting because when I accepted the nomination to that board, I did get quite a few phone calls from people saying, how could you sell out? So obviously I had zero intention of selling out. Um, you know, as I said earlier, the CEO got it. He and I met three weeks into our trial. We talked about what needed to be done. and. I trusted that he wanted to do it. I also knew that it was an extremely difficult thing to do, not least because there was an oil price crash in 2015. And so he was quite distracted. I mean, understandably distracted for a while, just keeping, you know, the ship from sinking. So um, it took six years for the um, transition strategy to really gel. And in that period, the board was largely a passenger. It was not driving any of these decisions. I was doing the best I could to raise questions and, and, and challenges, 
but the, they were not, this was not something that was embraced by the board. It was a private dialogue between me and the chief executive where I could see that he got it and I could see that various members of staff were working on it, but it wasn't something that um, the board really understood until the CEO unveiled it and said, this is mine and you guys are going to back it. You know, last year here in the United States, the big business slash environmental story was the proxy battle around based off of climate between Engine One and Exxon. And in some ways, I think of Corita Litvak as Engine One before Engine One, <laughs> right? I mean, it was, you were put on the board through a unique Italian voting thing called the Lista de Vota, where you were independently nominated by the investors. You and the CEO started talking about climate, um, but you've also taken your climate advocacy way beyond DNI. Tell us a bit about the Climate Governance Initiative. Sure. And again, thanks for that question. So basically what happened is I get onto the board of any, I realized that having an, a whole career behind me in sustainable investment is, it's a good thing, but it's not sufficient to give me all the answers about what I need to do as a director. And I ask around everyone I know, no one knows any better than I do. It's a really difficult thing. So I thought um, somebody needs to write the how-to manual here for us because uh, it doesn't exist. So I ended up, it took me a couple of years to figure out how to get this done. And by the way, I should say the first person I went to was my CEO to say, I'm going to do this. I am going to create an initiative that educates directors so that we, I and my colleagues, but directors all over can provide effective guidance and challenge to CEOs like you. And to his credit, he said, brilliant, because, you know, it, enough of the antagonism and the demonization, really what we need are educated directors who know what they're talking about. He was much more polite than I am, but that's basically the gist <laughs> of what he said. And so I ended up with the World Economic Forum, who agreed to be the home for an initiative that would be aimed at directors. Bearing in mind, the World Economic Forum that's not their remit. They deal with CEOs, they deal with chairmen, they deal with chief, like C-suite executives, but not with non-execs. But they made an exception in this case. And from there, they commissioned uh, a set of guidelines on what a good board needs to do to govern climate change effectively. And by the way, these are very challenging guidelines. They're called the Principles for Effective Climate Governance. And we set about creating chapters were, were present in 31 countries and growing. So we're in the process of setting one up in Egypt so that we can be ready for COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. So the idea really is to bring directors together with each other, but also with subject matter experts so that they gain the skills, but also the courage, because it takes a certain degree of moral courage to be that lone voice in the boardroom to say, ladies, gentlemen, um, we are not doing what we need to be doing to safeguard the relevance and the success of this company in a zero carbon world. And if anyone's, if it's anyone's job to do this, it's ours and we must do it. And we should have acted a long time ago, but we need to act right now. That's the gist of it. So from this idea, what, eight years ago? Yeah. So? Um, it would have been, yeah, eight years ago. Eight, years, eight yeah. years ago. You've got 31 countries. Yep. How many? Directors? 
oh, 120,000. And, and the reason, I mean, look, it's a big number. It's because we've partnered with director associations in these places, right? So you've got the NACD in the US, you've got um, AICD in, in Australia, ICD in Canada. Each of these people have 22,000 people apiece, right? So, and then other countries, it's less. Okay. So you're obviously a skilled director, <laughs> an effective organizer. Before that, you were the head of stewardship activities at FNC, correct? Which is a major asset manager. In fact, I think you built what was at one point um, the biggest specialized ESG staff in the business, maybe with the exception of BlackRock. So you've seen engagement from both sides. Let me ask you a, a broad question: What is it that board members and CEOs don't understand about investors, and what is it that investors don't understand about companies? Great question, which quite frankly is what keeps me up a lot of the time. Um, I would say starting with invest with directors uh, and, and, and executives, um, they seem to be caught in this misapprehension that investors don't think for themselves and slavishly follow what the proxy voting agencies dictate to them. And no amount of my saying this is nonsense. Believe me, I know this because A, I was an investor and B, I served on the advisory council of one of the two big proxy voting agencies. They are service providers. They take direction from their, from their investors. Their success is measured on the accuracy with which they predict what their investors are going to want. So when you see a convergence between how investors vote and how the proxy voting agencies recommend, that's an indication that the proxy voting agencies are doing their job, not that they're, not that they're dictating to investors what to do. So that is one, uh, I call it a misapprehension, but sometimes I think it's just willful blindness. It's, it's, a, it's a, you know, a stubborn desire not to see that investors can sometimes make decisions that directors and executives dislike. But that's a big one. Um, and I would say further that many uh, directors um, have a lack of nuanced understanding of how investors approach sustainability and governance issues. They see it as very binary. You're either anti-business or you're anti-my sector or you're pro-business and you, you're pragmatic and you understand my sector. And there's a lot of space in between those two extremes and they just don't really want to get that. So that's a little bit frustrating. On the investor side, what I've discovered, I mean, I would say that I discovered what I discovered my first day on the board is that it's a lot harder to be an effective director than I think many investors imagine. You know, they, they, they have these expectations that, that directors are going to, um, you know, behave in line with whatever standards of best practice have been enunciated. But quite frankly, those are fairly formulaic. They're quite, they, it, they only go so far in, in guiding us in how we are to take decisions. I mean, if I'm sitting in the boardroom on a monthly basis, I'm presented with CapEx proposals running into the up to sometimes 10, 15 billion euros a piece. It doesn't tell me in any best practice framework whether this is going to be consistent with my transition strategy. I don't have that knowledge and I need to build it. And it takes time for directors to acquire that level of mastery of the detail of their company. 
Let's switch from one crisis climate to another, refugees, and from your business career to your personal activities. As we're recording this, Russia continues to invade Ukraine. One result has been the creation of 5.6 million international refugees, probably another 5 million internal to the Ukraine. Um, and that, of course, is atop the refugees from other crises like Syria and Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, last year, the media discovered that you have sheltered about 30 refugees in your London home over the years. How and why did you come to the decision to become a welcoming, safe home for refugees? Well, it's something I always wanted to do. I wouldn't be here today if a middle-aged lady in a tiny little village in the Pyrenees hadn't volunteered to hide my grandparents and my mother in World War II um, because I'm Jewish and put her life on the line, literally. Uh, I've never put my life on the line. The most I do is maybe put my paintings at risk or my CD collection, you know? So it's very, very little for me to um, allow people to stay in my empty bedrooms because I have three daughters who've left. And uh, so there's plenty of space. And uh, I, I am heartbroken that we continue to tolerate um, a situation where you know, 70, 80 million people have nowhere to live. And I think that the only difference between them and me is that I chose the right parents and I was born at the right time. And so I feel that the least I can do is help a little bit. And, you know, it's interesting because I didn't start doing this until five years ago. In fact, uh, in a few days is the fifth anniversary of my first um, guest who still lives with me and is like my own son and um and it dawned on me when he moved in that you know the what I do for a living and many of your listeners and you yourself John what we do for a living I'm sure that sometimes at night you lie in bed and you think have I made a difference today or even this month or even this year you know sometimes it's really hard to see the impact of what we do. Whereas when you take one person in your home and that person cracks a joke in English or smiles for the first time because he has PTSD and has been withdrawn and frightened, it is like the sun shining in my room, in my house. You know, I feel, I feel like I have more impact with that one little thing than I do in my job. And it's good to have the balance. Okay, so you've lived through having your freedom threatened by a corrupt prosecutor. <laughs> you've spent your intellectual focus on the existential crisis of climate risk, and you give emotional support to refugees fleeing conflicts in broken states. How do you stay so optimistic? <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh. Um, <laughs> well, I will confess that, you know, there are good days and there are bad days, to be perfectly honest with you. But balance, I think that the best remedy against all of these ills that we've talked about is to just put your head down and do the best you can. It sounds so trite. 
but you really, I, I think the, the alternative is cynicism to throw up your arms and say it's hopeless. And I could never live with myself if I did that. So we do, and we hope that others will follow. And there are signs that others are following. I just read this morning that Australia is coming to its senses. I mean, you know, who would have expected that in terms of the upcoming election? Um, and, um, you know, the, the Liberal Party, which has been empowered forever, is, is getting a run for its money because of its climate um, denialism. So there is hope and there is hope in the young people. Um, and so I am not about to get up. Let's finish with some quick questions and answers. How do you relax? Oh, it's so embarrassing. I think sourdough bread. <laughs> I am a statistic in this pandemic. <laughs> you mentioned your CD collection. What sort of music do you listen to? Any favorite artists? Lots, but um, I am made fun of for really liking Tracy Chapman. <laughs> what are you reading right now? I am reading Catherine Belton, who is the FT Russia correspondent. Uh, she has a book called uh, Putin's Russia, and it's fascinating. <laughs> if you could be on vacation right now, where would you be? I'm planning it. I'm planning my first real vacation. I'm going to Malaysia. Um, where uh, a really good friend of mine started the Climate Governance Initiative in Malaysia and has the ear of the prime minister. She And I'm going to go see her. We're going to go to the rainforest. And she's also going to take me to do a bunch of meetings, but, but we're going to have a good time in the rainforest and probably on the beach too. <laughs> I hope you get some vacation in amongst your meetings. <laughs> if you could, last question, if you could magically talk into the ear of everyone in the world, what would you tell them? <sighs> they listen to your conscience. You know, it's there. Great advice. Thank you. You've been listening to outside in with our special guest, Karina Litvak. I said at the beginning that Karina was remarkable. That is an adjective I do not use often, but I think you've seen why. Thanks so much, Karina. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukonik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, Follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.